Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, yes, Monday, and we're right back at it. It's Hertel's show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you all had a great weekend, wherever you are across the street or around the world. We sure did. Downton Abbey movie came out. Enjoyed it. Almost perfect movie. Loved it. But we got a lot of noise in the news cycle to turn down uh, today. Uh, We've been covering Sri Lanka. We'll touch in on that. They defaulted on their debt over the weekend. What does that mean? We'll touch in on that story. Uh, Lithium mining. Uh, all those green energy technologies and batteries and EV cars and all that got to have lithium for it. Lithium's got to be mined. Can't do that in the U.S. for a large part. They're trying to get a new lithium mine going on the East Coast, be the biggest one east of the Mississippi. But there's complications. A great piece from Alexander Kaufman. We're going to talk about the lithium mining, the dirty end of green energy uh, in just a little bit. Also, uh, we always try to end on a good note. Uh, the Premier League ended over in England, most popular sports league in the world. Two young fans were involved in the trophy ceremonies, and both of them have a story worthy of hearing. We'll touch in on that. Great guest today, Kat Dwyer, another Young Voices uh, contributor. She's a marketing and media manager. Uh, she has a great piece out where she actually talks about places where the market is actually doing some good when it comes to things like environmentalism and conservation and climate stuff. Uh, Kat Dwyer on the program today. Great conversation about those things. Can't wait to bring that to you. But first, a very dark subject, a very disturbing subject, a subject we've covered before on Hertel. I've been writing about it at Ordinary Times on and off for about two years now. We've had other guests on that have talked about things like abuse. Uh, Jennifer Greenberg, if you haven't heard that discussion, make sure you go back and find that past episode. One of the earliest ones we did on Hertel because we know abuse is a serious issue. It's one of the first episodes we actually wanted to do. I think it was the fourth or fifth one we ever did. The Southern Baptist Convention. We've been talking about it, been writing about it. They have been kicking the can down the road on their abuse issues. Well, the third party report from Guidepost Resources, which is a semi-connected entity, although independent from the Southern Baptist Convention, has released a nearly 300-page report. I've read almost all of it. I've gone through a lot of it. You can go to ordinary-times.com. We have a link to the PDF. You can look through it. You can search it. It is far worse than even those of us that have been covering this issue, that have been advocating about this issue, that have been begging, pleading, demanding that the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention do something about this, we even thought it was going to be. Uh, It is damning stuff. The part just about the executive committee of the SBC, the direct actions they have involving abuse is over 20 pages. It is systematic. It is through the entirety 
of the leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, why are we talking about this? Southern Baptist Convention is the largest non-Catholic Christian denomination in America. It is a billion-dollar business on top of being a denomination. It is millions of people of faith. It is also very politically active people of faith. And the ugly in the Southern Baptist Convention has been going on for a while. So while I encourage you to please go read the report for yourself, again, it's a long report. You're probably not going to read all 300 pages, but you can PDF search and get to the viable parts that you want to read about. Now, Dr. Russell Moore left the Southern Baptist Convention not too long ago. He was a high-ranking member there. He was leader of the ELBC. Russell Moore basically said he had to leave because of things like how abuse was being handled, and also how they treated him himself when he tried to raise some of these issues. He's writing in Christianity Today. I'm just going to read you an excerpt of it. The very good Southern Baptist impulse for missions and helping others, for cooperation, is often weaponized the same way that grace or forgiveness has been in countless contexts to blame survivors for their own abuse. The report itself documents how arguments were used that, quote, professional victims and those who stand by them would be tools of the devil to, quote, distract from missions. Those who call for reform were told doing so might cause some churches to hold their funding. Those who called out the extent of the problem, most notably Krista Brown and the army of indefatigable survivors who joined that work, were called crazy and malcontents who just wanted to burn everything down. It's bad enough that these survivors not only endured psychological warfare and legal harassment, but they were also isolated with the implications that if they kept focusing on sexual abuse, people wouldn't hear the gospel and would go to hell. Cooperation is good and biblical idea, but cooperation must not be, quote, protect the base. Those who have used such phrases know that they mean. They know that if one steps out of line, they will be shunned as a liberal or a Marxist or a feminist. This is Russell Moore writing. They know that the meanest people will mobilize and that the good guys will be silent and that nothing, nothing compared to what is endured by the sexual abuse victims, including children who have no base. When my wife and I walked out of our last SBC executive committee meeting, we were ever attend. She looked at me and said, I love you. She looked at me and said, I love you. But if you're still a Southern Baptist by the summer, you'll be in an interfaith marriage. This is not a woman given to ultimatums, but the fact was the first one I'd ever heard from her, but she had seen and too, she had heard and seen too much, and so had I. I can't imagine the rage being experienced right now by those who have survived church sexual abuse. Again, this is Russell Moore, who left the Southern Baptist Convention leadership. I only know firsthand the rage of one who never expected to say anything other but we when referring to the Southern Baptist Convention, and I can never do so again. I only know firsthand the rage of one who loves the people who first told me about Jesus, but cannot believe that this is what they expected me to do and what they expected me to be. I only know firsthand the rage of one who wonders what reading what happened on the seventh floor of the Southern Baptist building, how many children were raped, how many people were assaulted, how many screams were silenced while we boasted that no one could reach the world for Jesus like we could. That's more than a crisis. It's even more than just a crime. It's a blasphemy. And anyone who cares about heaven ought to be mad as hell. It's Russell Moore writing. He would know. He was in those meetings. He was told to be quiet. He has documented this extensively. The rot in the Southern Baptist Convention goes deep. And like all abuse, like we talked to with Jennifer Greenberg and that one of those very first heard tells years ago, abusers love systems of power because they can get in there and use the systems of power, whether the religion or family or government or whatever the case may be, 
to hide their wicked deeds. The Southern Baptist Convention leadership has nobody to blame but themselves. They've been warned for years this was coming and they needed to clean their own house. They didn't do so because they didn't want to mess up the money train and they didn't want to mess up their power and they didn't want to mess up their public perception. They have this coming. And there's a lot of innocent people in the pews. They're going to suffer from it. And there's more victims than we ever imagined, according to this report, that have suffered greatly because of it. Shame on them. They need to be pulled out root and branch. How awful this is. Exposed to the world. They need to more than repent. They need to be brought to justice, whether in this world or the next. It's a shame. It's upsetting. I'm someone who worships at a Southern Baptist church. This is unacceptable. There's no excuse for the leadership that did this. And we will not be quiet about what they've done until all these victims get justice. And no waving of the cross or the Bible or anything else is going to excuse the wickedness that these people did. More her tell right after this. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hurtel. Uh, Let's talk lithium for a minute. Now, you know that term from batteries. Uh, A lot of people want to talk about green energy. A lot of those things like electric vehicles, like a lot of other things, you're going to need lithium batteries. Problem, the raw materials for lithium and lithium batteries is really hard to get. You got to mine it. And there is nothing less green than mining. I'm from West Virginia. Let me tell you about how coal mining goes when the industry ends and it goes away. Well, lithium is almost completely controlled overseas, mostly in China and other places because of the raw materials involved. Great piece in Huffington Post. Uh, Alexander Kaufman authored this in partnership with some other folks. Uh, Gaston, North Carolina is where the story is. They want to build a massive pit mine for lithium along with the chemical plant to process the stuff for the batteries. The thing is, this crosses a lot of streams because, again, the green buzzwords, clean energy, electric vehicles, all this fun stuff, those raw materials still got to be mined the old-fashioned way, a pit mine. It's dirty work. Now, of course, there's technological advances and things like that. But would you want that in your backyard? People want to talk about green. There's still a dirty part to it. It's a great piece. A lot of nuances to it. A lot of twists and turns. It's not clean cut. Excellent piece. It ends like this. And I want opponents. This is reading from the Huffington Post, uh, Piedmont Lithium Mine. The piece is titled The Lithium War Next Door. Talking about Gaston, North Carolina here. Opponents of the project here say they aren't numb to the climate concerns at all. Lancaster, the retiree, said he petitioned the county to approve a big solar farm just down the block from his home. But in the face of the ecological destruction on the scale few can reckon with, many here say they just want to preserve what they feel they have control over their lives. Again, this is a 500-foot open pit mine that we're talking about. Quote, we have a high population here, Pimbleton said. If things go wrong, responsibility will fall on the landowner to fight in court. Phillips said it is not irrational for the community to fear that we have some fly-by-night operation and we'll start this up and three weeks later we'll run out of money and leave. But he said, quote, the good news is we've become a reasonably sustainable company. 
We have investors like JP Morgan advising us, and we would have some very strong partners coming to the project. We're bending over backwards to be as accommodating as we can to a lot of people, he said. This is going to be a boom business. This is going to be a grow and grow and will be a great for the community. I think people will look back and come to realize that this worked out an awful lot better than they thought. Harper doesn't share the optimism. He had planned out his life. He would have passed his business on to his 31-year-old daughter who already works with him. He thought maybe someday his grandchildren would take over, and he would sit on the porch in the afternoons watching his wife spend meditative hours listening to music on her headphones while she mowed the vast fields behind their home and evenings observing the deer feast on the clippings. This is God's country, he said. Each and every day we see turkey and deer and ringtail hawks, even a bald eagle that nests around here. This is pristine, beautiful, and tranquil area, and it's going to be decimated, he said. All I can do is pray. There's sides to everything. Remember, all that green energy, it's got to come from somewhere. We do grown folk adult talk here, not just buzzwords. It's all well and good to drive electric vehicles and say you're saving the environment. Remember that lithium for those batteries has got to be mined out of the earth from somewhere. And that place where it's going to be mined from isn't going to be ecologically pleasing, even with the best of technology. Just remember that when you hear the buzzwords, clean energy. The people in the backyards who might have an open pit lithium mine probably see it a little differently. There's nuances to this. There's tough spots to this. Alexander Kaufman writing in HuffPost. We will link to it in the show notes. Read the entire piece. It is excellent. A lot of nuances, a lot of ins and outs, a lot of both sides that need to be considered to this trending topic that's only going to get hotter going forward. More Hurt Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Okay, let's talk a little environment. We got another one of our great Young Voices contributors. Uh, she is a she is a marketing and media manager. She writes all over the place, including the OC Register and The Hill. She's a graduate of San Jose State University. Well, if you got to go to school on the West Coast, I guess there are worse places than having to be at the beach in the valley. Uh, she's also the co-host of the really good Whiskey Bench podcast. Kat Dwyer, how are you, ma'am? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you. Okay, so we're going to cut against the grain of what a lot of people think is common knowledge or the common consensus, folks call it. There's this loud thing in social media, news media, that uh, the market or capitalism or whatever you want to call it is bad for the environment. You've been writing in fee.org, though. You list a couple of examples of where actually, no, the market's actually doing a pretty good job for the environment in a couple of ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's there's a there is sort of a misconception amongst uh, the environmentalist community uh, that that sort of thinks that that markets are what causes environmental problems. Um, but what I've written about in Fee and what the organization I work for, Perk, the Property and Environment Research Center, uh, what we focus on is identifying uh, sort of market solutions to environmental challenges. Um, so in the piece, I talk about sort of how markets are helping conserve water, um, helping sustain wildlife habitat, and helping get really critical forest restoration work done on the ground in a timely manner. Now, it's not that we don't know that there are companies out there that take advantage of environmental things. We obviously know that this is an accountability issue that both, uh, frankly, also the U.S. government needs to be accountable, some of the things they've done over the years. Governments, policies, companies, 
this all kind of starts with a little bit of a level of an accountability thing, right? As to whether or not folks are doing good, but, but there's this spectrum here where, yeah, there's a lot of bad, but we need to kind of stop and highlight the good stuff that's happening as well, don't we? We do. Um, and I think there's also a misconception about the role that property rights play in conserving resources, um, but property rights are really critical um, in incentivizing resource conservation and making sure that uh, scarce resources are put to their, their highest valued use. Um, and often in the example of sort of water conservation, sometimes uh, government regulation or government management actually gets in the way of conservation. Um, so so I, can, I can dive into that a little bit if you're interested. I am interested because I used to live in Vegas and, and this is uh, 10, 11 years ago now. And even then they were talking about like, wow, Lake Mead's almost empty and it's even worse now. Uh, and the joke was in Las Vegas, like, well, we don't have any water because it all goes to SoCal. You're out west, though. This water thing is really becoming a really, really thing. Just real quickly before we get into the details of it, because I know we have a little bit of East Coast bias media when you're on the East Coast. This water thing in the West is getting to be a real, real thing. It def- Yeah, it definitely is. Um, it's so I mean, drought is sort of a recurring phenomenon in the in the Western part of the United States. It's something that's inevitable that, you know, we have to prepare for. Um, and certainly in the last several years, it's uh, we're sort of in a new phase of drought. Um, and it's that has been exacerbated this year um, in large part due to, to La Nina weather patterns. So um, thankfully, I, I'm now I left California. I'm now in Montana. I did that before the pandemic. I'll give myself a little break there. Um, but uh, so we're at almost normal snowpack levels in, in a good portion of the state. But sort of um, certainly the the southwest of the United States um, is suffering from a really bad drought. Um, and as you know, like Lake Mead is in critical condition. Um, so, so tools to help conserve water are sort of more important than ever. Um, and water markets is one way um, that sort of the private sector can step in and help conserve water. Um, so sort of the way, uh, well, I'll, I'll give an example first. One of the groups that is helping do this um, is a conservation group called Trout Unlimited that I'm sure uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are probably familiar with um, what they do. Uh, they have been partnering uh, with with landowners who have water rights, um, primarily sort of ag producers or farmers, ranchers, um, to leave some of their water in stream at critical times to help support fish populations. Um, so basically, Trout Unlimited compensates them um, in exchange for leaving some of the water in stream. Um, and it benefits the fish and it benefits uh, the farmer. Um, now that can happen in states where uh, in-stream flow is considered a beneficial use. Um, and unfortunately, that is not the case across every state in the West. Um, it's increasingly becoming the new normal, but historically that's not the way uh, sort of water rights were managed. Um, historically, water rights were um, sort of uh, designated by the prior appropriations doctrine, which is sort of more commonly known as kind of first in time, first in right. So the first person to settle the land and put water to uh, a productive use or a beneficial use is the legal term. Um, they had rights to that water and they were the senior water rights holders. Um, and what was considered a beneficial use was determined by the government. Um, and typically that meant uh, a, a traditionally productive use like agriculture, uh, which made sense when we were trying to develop the West. Um, but increasingly sort of um, 
values are changing. And certainly with the realities of drought, uh, conservation is increasingly becoming um, uh, valuable. Uh, so where uh, the states that have allowed in-stream flow to be a beneficial use, um, it has sort of opened up the opportunity for water markets, um, which is, it's a great way to kind of utilize price signals by allowing water to be put to its highest value use. And sometimes that is uh, agriculture, certainly, and sometimes it's water conservation. Um, so when government has gotten out of the way, or at least sort of um, liberalized the regulations over water rights, uh, it has opened up this opportunity um, for these private voluntary exchanges to help conserve water. Yeah. And for people who are like, well, what does fish got to do with anything? Uh, the fish population, a healthy fish population, that is something conservationists and fishermen will tell you. That's kind of the early warning system to whether you're having problems with a, something like a water table or the water thing. That tells you ahead of time, hey, there's a big problem here because they're way more sensitive to us. Is We just discovered this on the East Coast with the Kmore situation with the Cape Fear River. Uh, they, that's how they figured it out. The, the fish migration patterns changed. The ecosystem changed. Lo and behold, 10, 15 years later, you got major water problems. So when people say, well, what's fish got to do with it? They got a lot to do with it, especially when you start talking about farmers down the road, start running out of water. Right, right. Um, and, and another example that maybe more directly relates to sort of drought relief for, for communities. Um, the So Native American tribes have, have their own water rights on their reservations, but many of them are limited from being able to sell their water off reservations, off reservation, meaning to, to municipalities and other communities that are not on the reservation. Um, it requires an act of Congress for them to be able to do that, which is a totally sort of tedious uh, process. Um, so that's something else that, that Perk, the group I work for, has been looking into, um, trying to advocate to change that so so tribes have more sovereignty over their water rights and can therefore help you know alleviate the drought in the west if they so choose to by selling their water to off reservation users um, so just another example of where you know maybe you know i'll give the government benefit of the doubt maybe well intentioned regulations um have have really um created environmental harm down the road yeah, and we've talked about it in other areas, but folks that haven't lived out West or been out West, again, you know, there's East Coast bias to the media. We all know this. Um, we've talked about it in things like criminal justice and sort of things like this. When you have large swaths of the areas out West that are a lot of reservation land out there, a lot of tribal land out there, there's a lot of government-owned land, that something like 80, 89% of the state of Nevada is owned by the United States government. Things like uh, land usage, water uses, it gets legally complicated really, really fast because this isn't just normal land stuff. It's government land. It's tribal land that has its reservation. There's a lot of overlapping stuff when it comes to rights like this, isn't there? Oh, yeah, there, there absolutely are. The, the, the way water rights are managed um, is incredibly complicated. The sort of very broad generalization I gave of the prior appropriations doctrine and now allowing for different you know, definitions of beneficial uses, definitely a simplified version of that. And the work Trout Unlimited is doing, um, it has to be very, very much tailored to very specific uh, landscapes, water systems, and, and landowners who have specific rights. Yeah. And for those of you that are curious, just last Supreme Court term, we still had two states suing each other over water rights. So it's an ongoing thing. Uh, you mentioned it to kind of uh, put a bow on this a little bit. You 
uh, summarize it this way. You said harnessing markets in this way, this is from your fee.org piece, allows for this precious resource to be put to its highest value use and gives conservationists a price mechanism by which to realize water's conservation value. I know people kind of maybe roll their eyes and going, well, you can't price water. It's something everybody needs. Yeah, we understand that. But we're talking legislation. We're talking legal documents. You have to put valuation on these things because you've got to be able to write laws and policy about them, don't you? Well, that yes, that's very true. That's one reason. But another reason, too, sort of from an economic perspective is without a price signal or price mechanism, uh, that value can't it, it isn't defined. So it's unknown. Um, and and without sort of rights, property rights over that resource. Uh, you get you wind up with the tragedy of the commons when nobody when nobody owns it everybody owns it right and and it can be depleted so when we have a scarce resource like water in the west um, having property rights over it so that it can be conserved and traded um, and then having a price mechanism that helps determine who values this most is it agriculture or is it conservationists and you know and that changes it's all voluntary exchange um, and it changes depending on you know the circumstances and the needs at the time. But those market tools help facilitate conserving that resource. And I think that's something that's um, largely, you know, not understood in the environmentalist uh, movement. Yeah. And that gap gets us right back to where we started with a lack of accountability, because then nobody knows who to go for for the answers. Uh, talking to Kat Dwyer about her fee.org piece and some water stuff. We're going to take a quick break on her tell. We come back, going to talk sustaining wildlife. One of my favorite uh, conservation story, going to talk a little elk. I love me some elk. And uh, we're also going to talk forest health, talk a little trees, uh, not just the tree hugging kind, the kind that we actually have some good news when it comes to trees in America. Uh, Kat Dwyer joining us on Herd Tell. More right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking environmental and conservation and some policy stuff and some practical examples of how the market isn't just the big bad part of environmentalists. There's actually good stuff going on. We like to highlight good stuff. Kat Dwyer joining us. Okay, we talked fish and water. Uh, let's get on dry land for a minute. Sustaining wildlife habitat. And you used an interesting uh, example here that I've kind of been following for a few years because I find it fascinating. Uh, elk occupancy agreements. So let's talk a little wildlife habitat for a minute. Yeah. Um, so the, the group I work with perk, um, partnered with another conservation group, uh, in Montana called the greater Yellowstone coalition. Um, and the two of us worked with a, uh, a private ranching family in a beautiful spot of Montana called the paradise Valley. Um, and we worked with them to conserve nearly 500 acres of their ranching operation um, to be designated uh, elk winter range. Um, so to provide a little bit of context around this, um, basically the private lands in a place like Paradise Valley provide a really critical service of providing habitat for a whole host of species, one of them being uh, elk, which is a, a really important keystone species um, of what is known as the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, which is one of the, if not the largest intact ecosystems in North America. Um, so they provide this habitat, but doing so comes at a cost to landowners elk, you know, have to, their cattle have to compete with forage with elk, uh, elk knock down fences. And they also potentially transfer, um, a disease called brucellosis, which causes cattle to abort their young. Um, so providing this habitat comes at a real cost. 
Um, and many of these ranchers are, are truly just like barely hanging on. Um, and at the same time that they're dealing with this cost, there's, there's really just sort of mounting uh, urban development pressure. Um, all of these damn Californians keep moving <laughs> here to Montana. Um, and uh, they, uh, so there's, there's just a huge pressure to, to develop a place like Paradise Valley. Um, and if that happens, then these large private working lands are going to be subdivided into ranchettes and into, you know, strip malls. Um, and we will lose that wildlife habitat completely. So Herc and we're trying to find a way to conserve this habitat, conserve these migration corridors. Um, and while at the same time, recognizing the really valuable critical role that private lands play um, in, in providing habitat. Um, so you know, this elk occupancy agreement is essentially a shorter term habitat lease. Um, and it's an alternative to a more onerous model that the government puts forth, which are conservation easements. Um, you know, many landowners are willing and, and able to manage their land for conservation and to provide habitat. Um, but the conservation easements that the government offers require conservation in perpetuity. Um, so that comes with a lot of strings and not a lot of landowners are, are willing always to, to go, you know, go with that agreement. Um, so having other tools like an elk occupancy agreement or other similar shorter habitat leases uh, offers just more opportunity to help conserve, to conserve habitat um, and make sure that these working lands continue working and that elk have, um, you know, these migration corridors open. Yeah. We've talked about those easements with our friend Gabby Hoffman when she talks conservation with us. And the problem with that is like you mentioned, that's, that's kind of a one shot deal because once you do it, it's almost, you talked about an act of Congress. This literally would take an act of Congress to get those easements changed back over. Um, but we need to mention here too, historically, this is a new twist on a very old problem, settling the West. Of course, we know the extremes of them almost wiping out the buffalo as an invasive species, quote unquote, for all the cattle guys on the railroads. Um, this goes back again. We keep hearing it over and over again. Proper land usage, property rights. This is some very fundamental stuff to Americans that just keeps popping up. This just has kind of an environmental or a climate-based uh, overtone to it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think something, you know, sort of, our theme here of, of things that are overlooked within the environmental space, uh, private lands are often overlooked um, and private landowners have, you know, over centuries learned how to properly manage their land. Right. Um, and they're really our partners in conservation. Um, and like I said, the reality in a place like Paradise Valley, and this is an issue that's happening all across the West. It's, it's really a choice between urban development or keeping these private lands working, which keeping them working means these are large open landscapes. They provide habitat. They also provide, you know, food, <laughs> which is critically important. Um, so there's a lot of value there. Uh, and a group like Perk, like we just don't, we don't view them as our enemy. We view them as our partners in conservation. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's um, social justice, education, anything. A lot of this stuff starts with a breakdown when government and the private sector don't see each other as partners and start becoming adversarial. It's kind of a universal theme. And it applies here as well to especially land use out west where it's a real issue and been an issue from the beginning. I figure it'll be an issue for a long time to go. OK, let's talk some trees. Problem with trees are I, I just had to trim some off my property is a tree close to your house is a bomb waiting to go off out west. They're fuel for wildfires. 
it the perception is wildfires are getting worse and worse. There's also data saying that they're getting worse and worse. You brought it up that there's some market stuff trying to address this and not just the usual uh, government programs, because frankly, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, forest management is one of those things nobody wants to talk about until something's on fire, and then nobody wants to talk about it afterwards, but it's vitally important, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, so to provide a little context on on what is often described as the wildfire crisis, um, wildfires are getting larger and hotter um, in large part as a result of over a century of fire suppression policy from the Forest Service. Um, basically, that that policy of putting out all fires as quickly as possible disrupted natural fire cycles. I think it's worth noting that wildfire is a really important part of a forest ecosystem. Um, it has regenerative benefits. Um, and so our suppression policies disrupted natural fire cycles um, and it led to a buildup of fuel sources in our forests, um, which means there's more fuel for a wildfire to consume. Therefore the fires burn hotter um, and longer. Um, also the wildfire season is sort of um, expanding, um, especially as we see drought conditions throughout the West. So fires are starting earlier and they're lasting longer into the fall. Um, so this, this problem has been growing um, and the Forest Service has identified uh, 80 million acres in need of restoration. That's their backlog right now. 63 million of that 80 million um, are have been identified um, at a severe risk of catastrophic wildfire. So that's a huge backlog. And at the current pace and scale, the Forest Service, it will take decades, multiple decades to address the full backlog. And of course, over that course of time, the backlog is going to continue to grow. So it's really, it's a huge problem that it's, it's going to take a lot of effort to really get our hands around and get ahead of it. Um, and thankfully, the private sector, some really interesting, innovative financial tools have emerged um, that are helping increase the pace and scale of that restoration. Uh, one group that's doing this is called uh, Blue Forest. Um, and they, in partnership with the World Resources Institute, pioneered what's called the Forest Resilience Bond. And it's a simple model, but it's brilliant. It basically brings stakeholders together to fund this kind of work. So uh, they, they pool money from uh, like an impact investor or an insurance company to put the money up front for the bond to get the restoration work done. And then stakeholders who would benefit from forest restoration, like a you know water utility in a particular municipality, um, they agree to pay back the bond at a reasonable rate of return once the restoration is complete. Um, so it's a really cool model to just get capital on the ground to increase the pace and scale. Yeah. One thing that doesn't get covered on these wildfires is this is a huge financial problem, especially in smaller rural communities, even in a big state like California. These are usually rural towns or rural municipalities that get wiped out by these fires. They then, you know, you imagine a small town having to completely redo all of their infrastructure, for example, which is what happens because people don't realize, you know, wildfire can destroy a road. You don't think of something like a road burning, but it does. It tears the asphalt up. It's got to be redone. Um, just talk about that for a second, that this is one of those things when you're talking about wildfires and forest conservation, this is one of those things where, yeah, you better spend some money for prevention because if you don't, the expense of trying to fix it after is astronomically more expensive for everybody, especially taxpayers. Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, and, and one example of sort of infrastructure that's threatened from wildfire are, are watersheds and then therefore wa the water supply to a community. Um, here in Bozeman, for example, 
the Forest Service has been trying to do restoration work around our local watershed to ensure that our water source isn't polluted. If, you know, it's not even if actually, it's when a wildfire comes through that area. Um, and if they can mitigate the severity of the wildfire by doing, you know, prescriptive thinning and prescribed burning around the watershed to protect it, that would be great. Um, unfortunately, that project has been delayed literally by decades uh, because of litigation. Environmentalists don't want to see, you know, any trees thinned or cut. And so they've stopped that project. And the reality is it's a huge risk. Like when, when that fire comes, uh, it can destroy your watershed and then your entire community is at risk. Um, so that's where the forest resilience bond, they, the first pilot project was conducted in the Tahoe national forest in California. Um, and one of the stakeholders that agreed to pay back the bond was the Yuba water council. Uh, cause they saw an interest in getting this kind of restoration work done to protect their water source. Um, so again, it's just a really, uh, it's a really innovative tool to just kind of get resources on the ground quickly. Um, and one thing I'll note about that to kind of illustrate how it did increase the pace and scale, the Forest Service, um, which I should note, Blue Forest works in partnership with the Forest Service. So it's not just like rogue people going out into the forest and chopping down trees. They work with forest managers. Um, but the Forest Service noted that because of the private capital through this forest resilience bond, they got that restoration work done in four years as compared to the estimated decade it was going to take if it was left up to the forest service alone. Yeah. And that's where this uh, public private partnership really comes in. We've seen it with things like infrastructure projects, um, both presidents, Republican and Democrat, they will talk about this when they go to do infrastructure. All of a sudden, if they want to do a fast, they'll bring up those public private partnerships. That's the flexibility you're talking about because people will tell you fire seasons, every fire season is different, weather patterns are different every single time. And you've got this backlog that has the Forest Service trying to work on a decade timetable. That's just not sustainable. Talk about what the problem here is, because I think we oversimplified how much of it is bureaucracy, how much of it is legal entanglement, because a lot of these areas get tied up in court through environmentalist groups and the government themselves on fair usage, things like this. I suspect there's a spectrum of problems here, but kind of break it down. You know, what's bureaucracy? What's just out and out neglect in some cases? What's tied up in court? And then what of it is, is just time's moving way faster than the government and the private sector can keep up with it. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, I would say historically, sort of the Forest Service's suppression policy is what really led to the severity of the problem we're dealing with. Um, they, however, have realized, and even the Biden administration has acknowledged that like we need to actually do this type of restoration work. So thankfully there's been a, there's been a shift in sort of perspective and motivation there. Um, now the hangup is largely bureaucratic. So there are um, really, really lengthy environmental review processes that um, any, that the service, the forest service has to go through um, to, to actually implement forest restoration work. Um, there is NEPA, which is uh, uh, one um, process, environmental review process that I think people are familiar with um, that can delay forest restoration, you know, projects by like seven plus years. Um, so it just it, it, it um, you know, NEPA is designed to protect the environment to make sure that any any projects that are being done on the environment are, be, are being done so in a way that that protects the environment. Um, in the forest restoration context, 
Unfortunately, NEPA is actually preventing work that needs to be done to protect the environment. It's actually doing the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing. And it's actually putting our forests at risk because it's delaying this urgently needed restoration work. Um, and then there is the threat of litigation, which like the Bozeman uh, Municipal Watershed Project example I shared, um, litigation can delay these critically needed projects by, by decades. Um, so there's thankfully an understanding that we need this restoration work, but now we need to amend regulation and, 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 and sort of hedge against litigation to get this work done. Um, we know it's an election year. This stuff is not going to show up on any of the top 10 issues. This isn't, you know, abortion or the war in Ukraine or inflation or the economy. What should the average person that does care about conservation be doing to kind of keep pressure on folks? Because we know the old, well, call your congressman. Well, that doesn't really work that much. What can folks do on their social media and just their average interactions to talk about these issues in an effective way, do you think, especially in a campaign season where there's a lot of things that are a lot noisier, but when the forest fires come into your house or you run out of water or the elk encroach and get your cattle herd sick or whatever the case may be that we're talking about, all of a sudden it's a pressing issue. Uh, how should folks talk about this just in their normal social media interactions, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess because these issues aren't really going to grab national headlines, I think keeping trying to keep a, a, a local perspective and and work, you know, with your local representatives, if that's possible, you know, tag them, I suppose, on social media and maybe try to like, you know, get it, make it trend. Um, that's, of course, difficult. But I also think, you know, looking again to the private sector, there's a lot of really innovative conservation groups and businesses that are trying to solve these problems privately. Um, and frankly, if the government doesn't care or it's too tied up in its own red tape to actually move to make to make progress on these problems, then let's look to the innovative private sector and let's take this issue into our own hands um, and get the work done uh, on our own. Um, and, and thankfully, that's, that isn't such a tall order. There, there are people doing it. Um, so I would encourage folks to to look into you know their local community and see what groups are doing are doing private innovative work and and see how they can support that. Yeah, and we said it back earlier in the conversation. Uh, public private partnership. Government needs to be a partnership with the public and with businesses. Sometimes the government's got a better idea. Sometimes business has got a good idea. And if you don't have a partnership, you don't have any mechanism to pick and choose which one's good. Cat Dwyer, this is excellent stuff. Really appreciate your time talking about this. We'll get you back sometime to update it. But until we see you on Herdtel again, let folks know where they can follow you, uh, your social media and what you got going on, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kat J. Dwyer. Uh, I share all my writing there. Um, and then you can tune in to my weekly podcast uh, with my co-host, Stephen Torna. It's called the Whiskey Bench Podcast. Um, and we don't just talk about whiskey, we drink whiskey, but then we talk about world events, economics, politics, you name it. Yeah. All those things go better with whiskey. I'm told a yes. uh, little lubrication for the tough topics of the day. Uh, that's cat with a K by the way, kids, when you go to search it up on the Google machine, uh, her uh, social media is on the lower third graphic there. And we are linking to her piece in the show notes, cat Dwyer, another one of those great young voices contributors. Great conversation. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We've been covering Sri Lanka on the show quite a bit. We've been talking about it a lot, and people keep going, why are you talking about Sri Lanka? 
Well, it's very simple. What's going on in Sri Lanka converges a lot of different stories, especially in geopolitics. A lot of what's going on in the world is all converging to cause problems in Sri Lanka. So it makes it a good case study and something we're going to see elsewhere. It is a nation that was badly mismanaged by its leadership. It is a nation that is carrying excessive foreign debts. It is a nation that was highly susceptible to when Russia's war in Ukraine kicked off. It was susceptible to things like fuel prices and food shortages. In fact, they have now basically ran out of their country's stores of fuel. And it's susceptible because of who holds that debt. China has a lot of interest. Neighboring India has a lot of interest. The United States has a lot of the bond holding for the country. You can see quickly when you start delving into the issues going on in Sri Lanka, why there's some lessons to be gleaned here. One of the big ones is back during the COVID pandemic, teetering nations like Sri Lanka were told to take on extra debt to do what they needed to do to get through the pandemic. And then the people that hold that debt, like China, come to collect. But then unlike here in the States where you can just declare bankruptcy on something, China is predatorially taking over infrastructure like the port in Colombo, like other infrastructure projects. India, sensing the danger with something like that, is doing the same and taking over other parts of the infrastructure. It's a complicated situation. And it, quite frankly, it's a god-awful mess. There's been rioting there. People have actually died, eight dead, multiple people hurt. Uh, the leadership of the country had to resign, although it passed to a family member. There's a lot of nepotism involved. That's part of the problem, too. Um, but so this news was not uh, shocking to us from the BBC back over the weekend. Last Thursday, an IMF, that's the International Monetary Fund, who's been trying to bail Sri Lanka out, said the current talks on a potential loan program are expected to conclude by Tuesday. Sri Lanka's government said previously it needs as much as $4 billion just this year, but the IMF warned that Sri Lanka already has a very high rate of inflation and was likely to raise even further. That is why most people came over the weekend and said that Sri Lanka has now officially defaulted as a nation on its debt. From the BBC, quoting from the piece, in many ways, this wasn't a surprise. The warning sirens of potential default were blaring for weeks, but much more than that on the streets of Sri Lanka, where the crisis is biting, nobody is shocked as petrol fuels run for miles, with fuel being sold on the black market for eye-watering amounts. As lines for handouts of free bread get longer by the day, the island's inability to pay back its debt is being painfully felt. It is the first interview since taking office last week. The country's prime minister told me things would get worse before they improve in Sri Lanka, but even when he wasn't able to predict just how bad this was going to be, quote, nobody has got all the details, so I'll be like a doctor who's opening up the patient for the first time. Today's default is depressing diagnosis for a nation facing more economic turmoil, even as talks with the IMF and other nations continue. On Thursday, ratings agency Moody uh, Services said Sri Lanka had, quote, defaulted on its international bonds for the first time. Moody said it expected the country to voluntarily reach an agreement over the IMF bailout. However, and this is a quote, finalizing that program will take several months, giving the need for staff level agreement on both sides following parliamentary approval. If they can get Sri Lanka's parliament to agree on anything, um, the Sri Lankan president's elder brother resigned as prime minister after the government supporters clashed with protesters. Nine died. 300 more were wounded in the violence, appealing to the world for more financial help. He said, quote, there won't be a hunger crisis. We'll find food. Of course, it's too late. That's already happening. We'll continue to cover Sri Lanka because we're going to see this in other countries, unfortunately. And it goes to show that policy has very real world implications. 
more Hurt Tell right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Heard Tell. Uh, the English Premier League, most popular sports league in the world, crowned their champion, Manchester United, fourth time in five years, an amazing run. You may have noticed two people as part of the trophy ceremony. Uh, we always do an end of the show good thing. These two individuals were fans, but you might have wondered who they were. The young lady who carried the trophy out from behind the scenes out to the field for the presentation, her name was Olivia Wardle. She's 22 years old, and she has been working for City in the community doing community relations stuff while battling cancer. The young man that was actually on the podium that helped to put the medals around the necks of the triumphant Manchester City players is a man named Bennett Mason. And this young man's sister committed suicide some months ago, and he's been working as an advocate ever since. That was important amongst all the celebration, the confetti and the pyro and all the joys. And it was an amazing game where City came from behind and wanted to win the title that these two individuals be recognized and good for the club for doing so. Two fans who have a lot going on in their lives, but do things for others and for different reasons to be mentioned in the same breath with the now triumphant Manchester City. Good for Manchester City on highlighting these two individuals. Uh, ben Mason, who's going to be working towards suicide prevention in the memory of his sister, and Olivia Wardle, who is fighting cancer. Good for them. We wish them both the best that'll do it for her tell uh another monday in the books that means we got a busy week ahead can't wait to bring you more great conversations with good guests got a lot of noise out there in the news cycle going to do our best to turn it down heavy topics but we're also going to find the bright side of things because remember every story at its core is a people's story we want to treat people fairly find out how to make people's lives better so until we talk to you again on Herd Tell, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Source, lemon.